The following bonus episode of Forever Star Wars does contain spoilers for The Mandalorian, so just giving you a heads up, if you haven't watched The Mandalorian yet, you might want to skip this episode. If you have, proceed. You're officially the first guest that I've had on Forever Star Wars. How do you feel about that? Well, since I'm not a big Star Wars fan, it feels kind of odd, but I get it. You want to... Uh, yeah, but I thought you were going to say honorable. <laughs> this is quite an honor. <laughs> <laughs> this is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, but it feels close like a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. my first ever interview for Forever Star Wars, I have a very special guest. He is my husband. Uh, his name is Steve. And I wanted to do a bonus episode because uh, he, as somebody who is not steeped in Star Wars culture, is still somebody who has become a fan of The Mandalorian. And I think that's one of the key reasons why this show is such a runaway success. So it's just kind of amazing to me that the show fires on all cylinders for so many different kinds of audience members. So here is a... Uh, it's a somewhat lengthier interview than I anticipated. Uh, I thought it'd be about 10 minutes, but it ended up being a bit longer than that. So I just wanted to share this because I think he provides some great insights as, uh, I guess we're going to call him uh, a layman in terms of Star Wars. But without any further ado, uh, let's get on to the interview with Steve. Yeah, so we've we've uh, we've been together quite a while, and to give people who don't know uh, us uh, a little bit of a background to put it into context uh, we saw the original The Phantom Menace together in theaters and that was more than 20 years ago so that's how long we've been together and in all that time even though you're not a Star Wars fan I would say you're Star Wars adjacent because of me and you've seen all the films uh, but you're not you're you're very much what I would call a casual Star Wars viewer. Um, but when we watched The Mandalorian, I noticed that you were really uh, taking to it. So over the course of the series, what was it about the show that first grabbed your attention and sort of got its hooks into you? And at what point in the show did that happen? It took a bit for you know me to be interested in The Mandalorian because, you know, I don't like alien creatures and they're very two-dimensional and this first episode um, had many but um, I noticed a tone that appealed to me and, and you know me I'm all about a consistent tone which uh, gets my attention the tone was uh, you know kind of light uh, and driven by the music and we'll talk about that later and the fact that it has an accessible scale allowing uh, viewers to feel more like participants instead of you know, watching from the bleachers. Also, I could see that the storytelling was going to be uh, more visual, but it takes a, a very good storyteller 
to minimize dialogue and allow the visuals to tell a story. So it didn't take long for me to see the inherent quality of what was being made. And of course, I'm drawn to quality. Yeah, something you said is that it's it's very much visual storytelling. And uh, one of the things that George Lucas was famous for saying was that the Star Wars films for him are sort of like silent movies. Like you, you could you could just play the music soundtrack and the visuals and be able to tell what's happening in the story. And The Mandalorian has many episodes where literally things that are happening are just happening without any dialogue. Uh, they just play out and you're just sort of watching these little dramas unfold, you know, without dialogue, sans dialogue. Well, poor George, you know, his movies might have played better if he hadn't written any of the dialogue. <laughs> so I get that. <laughs> uh, I'm debating whether I want to keep that in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might not have should have said this is maybe the, the podcast you shouldn't have said that on. <laughs> well, we'll let it play. We'll let it play. Um so, yeah, so uh, one of the key factors in telling a story visually is the use of a protagonist that's wearing uh, a helmet, which is uh, makes for a very interesting dynamic. And I covered this in uh, my review episode, which, by the way, if you're listening to this first, be sure and check out the full season one review episode where I cover <laughs> the entire show and my thoughts. Um, that should be dropped at the same time this is. So look for that um, in that review, I discuss my feelings of how watching a faceless protagonist play out. What were your observations about that? And was this the first time that you've ever had an experience watching a faceless protagonist? Uh, actually, it wasn't. Um, you know, in the um, late 40s, early 50s, during the film noir period, you know, there was a movie um, starring a man who's played most of the movie uh, with his face in a bandage. So we never got to see his face, and the mystery of it uh, was compelling. What was uh, that? Do you remember? I don't remember the name of the movie, but I do remember that it struck me that, you know, we never saw his face, or maybe not until the end. It's It's been a while. Mike, Mike could look it up, but I do remember that. And then, of course, uh, Hal from Space Odyssey was a pretty fascinating character, Although he wasn't a character you wanted to know more about because, you know, uh, he was virtual and, and not real. Uh, you know, and as I just said, I, I don't like creatures because they're two-dimensional. But the Mandalorian is, uh, of course, not a creature. But I think the fact that he has, uh, that, that we don't see his face, it adds to the mystique of who he is. Uh, so I found myself uh, looking for clues to who who is this person under the you know under the uh, armor uh what's he like what motivates him and i have to say that the uh quality of pedro pascal's voice which is a little bit hoarse no droids and a little soft even was a nice counter to the you know hardness of the exterior you know the script is very effective in revealing who he was even though there wasn't much script you know that to me is kind of brilliant and then of it's, course it's economic storytelling uh, that's exactly right and you know i love some economy when it comes to storytelling uh also the movement of the actor you know in the armor 
we need to acknowledge that. We know that's not Pascal, but uh, he does an excellent job of projecting uh, a personality, uh, you know, just by his movements. So that's equally important. I enjoyed uh, learning about the Mandalorian through these little clues and sort of putting the puzzle together. That's another reason the mystique needs to be maintained as much as possible. Uh, I just remember one scene that uh, that really grabbed me is is when there was a child, and, and I'm not talking about the child, but a child who asked him if he could play with one of his uh, uh, objects. That was chapter four. Can I play with him? Sure. The response of the Mandalorian was uh, a, a very simple and relaxed, sure. Well, that told me an awful lot about the character and let me know that he was uh, really a human and a human-scaled uh, person. Yeah, his behavior around children was very telling, that he that even though he was this hardened bounty hunter, he had a, a casualness around a domestic situation or around a mother and a child that sort of told you that he recognized that he's in a different environment here. Uh, right. And there is a uh, difference between who's in the suit and the appearance of the suit, because you kind of know who the suit is. The suit is the, a bounty hunter and, a, and, you know, supposedly the best in the universe. But uh, that, that part is fascinating to me, the difference between who's in the suit and the suit. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this earlier about the uh, accessibility of the world to the viewer, of how the, the way the story is told, it sort of puts you, the viewer, into the story. You could, you experience it sort of through his perspective, and it makes it a little bit more relatable. It makes the world feel more real. One of the things that you know, that you mentioned early on was you were impressed by the world building of the show, and you you commented on how dense the world was, and yet it was very accessible. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit more, expand upon what it is about the world building that makes the show accessible to you? You know, going in at being a Star Wars show, you know, we all have a presupposition about that world and that it has to exist in that universe, and it does. Yet this feels uh, a lot more intimate and personal to me than any other Star Wars I've seen uh, you know, but remember, I'm a casual viewer, and and I really only watch in the moment. You're not trying to connect the dots and 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 figure out how this all fits into canon and all that stuff, like like we hardcore fans do. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> in fact, in fact, the more the mythology, the less interested I become. But it called to mind to me a, a time that you and I visited um, a historic home. It's a large and and beautiful house right here in Alabama. But what I noticed about it is, is despite the fact that it was opulent on the outside and the details inside were equally opulent, it felt livable. The, the scale of the rooms uh, was not uh, grand. Uh, it seemed like a person could move around the house with, you know, without having to be overwhelmed. And this is how the Mandalorian feels to me. It, it looks and feels like a place in which I might could live. There are no bombastic monolithic structures or ships or cities. 
uh, this location looks like a small town. What you're describing is like the contrast of seeing a world like Coruscant that's just nothing but endless buildings, which is just almost in, hard to wrap your head around, versus a small dusty town with just a few buildings and some locals. And it, just the contrast of how you could see yourself visiting the small town, but you don't really see yourself in the world of Coruscant. Well, and that's right. But one of the reasons is the, the world of Coruscant, uh, that, that scale is so uh, huge uh, and so unrealistically futuristic that, you know, you feel like an observer. You really do feel like you're on one side of the screen. You're just looking at it. Yeah. Uh, whereas in The Mandalorian, uh, I frequently sort of feel like I'm in it. And, and one of the reasons for that is I've noticed that the camera sometimes looks like an onlooker or a participant, you know, and the viewer is the camera. So it, it feels like I'm in the scene and it helps me become much more invested in the scene. Watching the series week to week with you, I noticed that you would frequently point out how much the music was appealing to you. And I noticed it right away because it is a very stark departure in terms of tone to what we've we've gotten used to expecting from Star Wars, which is the sort of classic old Hollywood-style movie soundtrack. And I noticed right away that this feels very, very different, and yet it fits in to the world. Uh, I just wanted you to comment on just what you've observed about the music that really stood out to you. And I like to say, because I know that you and you've asked this question, the composer is, uh, and I'm going to butcher the name, Ludwig Göransson, and he composed uh, the Black Panther movie, which we liked very much. And he also got his start in television. I think he did some soundtracks for the series Community, which we didn't watch. But this is he's he's only been doing this for a few years, and he's very, very young. Well, that's good to hear, uh, because we have a whole lot to look forward to uh, from him. I don't know how long you want this uh, interview to last, but you might have to interrupt me, because I, I just can't say enough about the music. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, any serious film fan knows how important the music is to the storytelling and especially the tone. Now, a good example is uh, Bernard Herrmann's score to Psycho is essentially a character uh, in the movie. And without that score, uh, the movie would not have had the same kind of impact. That shower scene score is uh, part of our culture. The music here in The Mandalorian is essential vital to the tone, which is, the tone is something I very much like. Um, the rhythms, and there's a lot of rhythm here. I'm not gonna try to describe the rhythm or what kind of rhythm it is, but it does push and pull the action and the story along. Uh, there's a, a kind of whimsy to it.
I mean, it's so cheerful in a lot of ways. That is what makes the tone light enough so you know the Mandalorian, while a serious character, is not going to take itself too seriously. There's a lot of melodies. There's so many melodies. Uh, it, it's just like there's hook after hook. And uh, I'm always, I'm, I find myself looking forward to the next scene just to see how it's scored. It sounds like the composer is using uh, maybe some unusual instruments, uh, maybe some you know ancient instruments or or very or instruments that are specific to certain cultures. And, right, right. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because it was it occurred to me uh, before we did this interview. I was just thinking about this today how I, I was trying to put into words for myself what it is about the score that just really jumps out at me and why I love it so much. He uses this weird blend of, like you said, more like almost instruments and, and sounds from like ancient cultures, but he also mixes it in with really high tech, cool synthesizers. There's a scene in the second episode with, uh, involving, you remember the big creature that he had to steal the egg from? It was called the Mudhorn. Yes. I didn't mention this in my review, and I can't believe that I, I, I didn't cover it because I'm such a big fan of big creatures and animals in Star Wars. But that scene was one of my favorite scenes in the series because of the music. The music does this weird thing where it becomes really guttural. and almost really primitive and primal sounding. And he uses synthesizers, but it also has this tribal sound. And the one thing about the Star Wars universe that I love is how it blends the ancient and the old with the high tech and the new. It's, it's a world of like ancient fantasy, but it also has spaceships. And his music is doing that. It's taking ancient uh, instruments and blending them with high tech synthesizers. Uh, again, I, I just can't say enough about the music and how much I enjoy how it underscores or scores uh, the story. I, I do, you know, want to say that regardless of what we're hearing and, you know, did he use culture-specific instruments, you know, how much, or sounds, let's say, you know, sounds on a, on a synthesizer, it could be that just the uh, composition and the orchestration is just uh, brilliant and is all his. So I hope they keep him around throughout the series. And I want to go back to the previous movie he did. Which one was that? Black Panther. Black Panther and listen to that music. I sort of remember liking that music, but I don't remember anything about it. I, it sort of what I remember about it is it does that same thing where it blends like the ancient uh, African tribal sounds with sort of new age, or like like futuristic because the world of Wakanda is very a futuristic city. So in a lot of ways, it's it's a lot like the Mandalorian. It's that old and mix of old and new and futuristic. Yeah, sometimes I hear almost even a little reggae in it. Yeah. So the the sort of light lightness of it helps maintain that tone. And, you know, like I've said before, I love a good tone. Let's conclude with your uh, overall feelings about the series and, and what is it that you maybe want to see in the future from season two? 
Uh, first observation is that The Mandalorian, to me, is a lot more fun than than most other Star Wars movies. Um, of course, I love Solo. It's uh, surprisingly like my favorite yeah, I, that was a very unique experience to walk out of a film with you, and and I was just kind of okay with it, and you were just really effusive about it. You loved it, and I was like, wow, this is a weird switching of the, the dynamics. Yeah, it, to me, um, the solo felt a lot more fun, like the very first, uh, you know, episode four, 1977, if you recall, I was... I'm barely, barely old enough to recall, but <laughs> that's yeah. okay. Yeah, I played hooky from work to go see it the day it opened. And of course, it was a lot of fun. But to me, The Mandalorian is equally fun. And by the way, we need to set a time so that we can watch Solo again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, uh, you don't have to really twist my arm. You know, you should know that if you suggest that we watch a Star Wars, I'm never going to say no. So, well, again, you know, the Mandalorian, I'm always uh, disappointed when it ends because I want more. You know, I, I, I want the episode to last longer. Um, it has never felt like a slog. Okay, let's face it, the prequels were a slog. <laughs> okay, you really have to tone down the Star Wars bashing <laughs> in this interview. You really do. Uh, but um, well, and you also have not gone back and and watched the entire Mandalorian series back to back like I did before my review. It really solidifies even more so when you watch it. Of course, not having watched it a second time, and I'm very unlikely uh, to parse it out like you and other fans will. You know, down scene by scene. You know, but if if there are any flaws, I don't see any that matter to me. I do like the standalone episodes without them having to be slavish and contribute to a particular mythology. Uh, and I hope it'll remain, you know, fun, uh, a bit whimsical and, and light. Okay. Well, uh, this has been a great uh, opportunity, I think, for uh, fans to hear a non-fan perspective. So <laughs> kind of made it clear that I was not necessarily. Yeah, there's a few times in there. There's a few times in there you threw in that that you're definitely not a hardcore fan. That's you. You established that very well. Um, but thank you very much, Steve. Uh, I appreciate it. And this may not be the last time that that I ask you your opinion on Star Wars. <laughs> well, just keep in mind that uh, uh, I'm never going to sh- sugarcoat it. This was easy to. Uh, talk about because uh, again it's just so much fun you know for me it's fun well it's fun for me because I'm already hardwired to like it or to to be receptive to it it's really fun for me when someone who's not steeped in Star Wars fandom suddenly takes to it for its quality and its storytelling so thank you so much well keep one thing in mind we have not mentioned Baby Yoda once (laughs) Uh, that's because the world, Baby Yoda belongs to the world now, and so we'll let the world mention Baby Yoda. Really, you know, bottom line, if I want to summarize what I think about it is that it... Let's wait until she finishes the drink. (laughs) (laughs)
in the background. <laughs>